Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we see yet another one of David's sins. He doesn't trust in God. He trusts in the numbers. We may fall into that same sin and temptation in our own lives. You're listening to Trusting in Numbers by seminarian Lorinda Vanderwerp. Good evening. It is a privilege to be here this evening and open up God's Word with you. Um, I wanted to just acknowledge that um, uh, Reverend Mike Hogaboom really um, worked diligent with me this week to get me set up well to, to step into the pulpit this week, and I just really have enjoyed getting to know some of the staff here at LaGrave. Um, I also had the privilege of worshiping with you last week, Sunday evening, and uh, partaking in communion with you. Our scripture passage this evening comes from 2 Samuel 24. It's quite a lengthy passage, so just a heads up about that. And as we prepare to hear God's word read and spoken, let's just take a moment to still our hearts and request the work of the Holy Spirit. Join me in a moment of prayer. Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of your word. Open our ears, O God that we may hear what you will speak. Open our minds, O God, that we may understand what it means to revere you and to learn your ways. Open our hearts, O God, that we may grasp the treasure of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And then, Lord, open our mouths that we may proclaim the mystery of the gospel and speak it boldly. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, and so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. And after crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aurora, south of the town in the gorge. And then they went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim, Hodishi, and on to Don Juan and around towards Sidon. And then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. And after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, 
take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Darin to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting to the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded, through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes to offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is the word of the Lord. I remember when I was younger, I used to play a card game with my brother called um, War. I don't know if they play that game anymore or not, but it was something that we enjoyed playing. In this game, you take the entire deck of cards and you divide it among the number of players. And each round consists of every player flipping over the top card on their stack. And you determine who has the highest value. And whoever has the highest value 
wins that round and they collect all the cards. And as the game progresses, predicting who would win the game was quite easy to do because you could see it by the number of cards the other player had. Our story this evening seems to be wrapped up in numbers. And while it's clear that God is angry at Israel and commands David to conduct a census of Israel, it's less clear why God appears to be angry at David since he's following through and doing exactly as the Lord has instructed him to do. This passage is a bit of a mystery. Commentators communicate that the last four chapters of 2 Samuel represent a chiasm. And while chapters 21 through 24 are intentionally selected in order to communicate a specific purpose, it is presumed that they're out of historical, chronological order. So this adds to the difficulty in discerning what God or David is responding to. When we look at the same story recounted in 1 Chronicles 21, the mystery only seems to deepen as this text indicates that Satan is the one to incite David to conduct the census, not God. The census itself appears to be the heart of the problem. Because in verse 10 of our text, we read that David feels guilty for counting the people. Thus, we assume King David, all puffed up from his success of his rule of king of Israel, pridefully turns to his right-hand man, Joab, and commands him to count the number of men he has to fight in the army. (laughs) His wise friend carefully responds to the king's demand. First, Joab showers him with blessings, and then he proceeds to question David's motive. But David dismisses his wary friend, and he sends him on his way. David's actions place his trust in the number of bodies he has to fight, and in his own strength and in power. And in doing so, he places his trust in something other than God. And God's instructions to his people was obedience, demanding solo allegiance, no other gods. But David had deliberately disobeyed God. And the census took over nine long months. And I want to point out that for humans, the gestation period for babies is nine months. So it's very interesting here that we're using nine months because to birth sin is taking nine months. The army moved from city to city, counting all the eligible men. Word of their presence spread like wildfire throughout the neighboring towns. The people were confused. They were worried and they were scared. They wondered why the king would take a census. Women were worried that their husbands would potentially be leaving for another battle. And etched in the brows of the men were concerns about an imposed tax. Potentially for the temple, they heard the king wanted to build for God in Jerusalem. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, When Israel asked for a king, God had warned them, but they had refused to listen. And now they were seeing firsthand all those warnings were coming true. The king was taking 
and taking and taking some more, just like the kings of the neighboring nations. And soon after the census was completed, people started dying. A plague just swept through the land. They had so many people dying, they had a difficult time figuring out where to go with all the bodies. 70,000 total. In the stench that filled the streets, the people could really sense that God was angry with them. And they recalled his ultimate warning. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you. David had failed them as their king. He had placed his trust in the number of men he had to fight in his army instead of placing his trust in the Lord. And God punished David by taking away the very thing that David had misplaced his trust in, the number of men he had to fight. David's sinful actions as a king also negatively impacted the people he was called to serve. There was a time in my life when I recall trusting in numbers similar to King David. I was serving as a music director in a small congregation in Jenison, Michigan. Each week I met for worship planning with my pastor, evaluating how worship went the preceding Sunday, planning for the following Sunday, reading through the scripture text, and praying for the church as well as one another. And at some point during that planning process, I would sneak into the back of the church and look at the tally sheet indicating how many members of the congregation had attended worship. Week by week, that number steadily declined. I was serving as an elder and a deacon at that time, and along with the decline in attendance was also a decline in giving. And as an employee of the church, I was anxious about how that continuing decline would impact my continued employment at the church. As an elder, I served on the chair as a membership, I served on the chair of the membership and the outreach committee and canvassing the growing neighborhood around the church was at the heart of what I thought was necessary for church growth. While David trusted in the number of men he had to fight in his army, I was fearful in the lack of numbers. Both of us had something in common. We were both trusting in numbers rather than God. I questioned my motivations in desiring outreach to the neighboring community. I wondered if I was really concerned about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ or if I was really interested in increasing the number of bodies in worship. Because our intentions are at the heart of the matter when it comes to God. And I know I'm not alone when it comes to trusting numbers. Many churches are fearful fearful right now, especially following COVID-19. When many churches switched to virtual worship and did not worship in person, Concerned leaders were worried about whether members of the congregation would return to in-person worship following the quarantines and restrictions to gather in person. And others worried if mask mandates led members 
to transfer their memberships to churches more in line with their thinking, not requiring mass, which had the potential of a mass exodus. And still other churches refrained from entering into discussions about important political agendas out of fear of division resulting in loss of membership. And not only do we see this misplaced trust in the numbers in our churches, but we also witness it in our nation. Instead of placing our trust in God, we place our trust in presidents or our political party association, whether we're Republican or a Democrat, or in our military strength, or in our economic success as a nation or a superpower. We place our trust in things rather than God, in the numbers, and we fail to trust him completely. And while David's army conducts the census, we witness God waiting patiently. God was angry at David's lack of trust in him, trusting in the number of men he had to fight in his army instead of trusting God. However, God is slow to respond. And we also witness God working in David's heart, convicting him of his sin. And then once David is aware of his sin, he communicates his remorse to God. And God immediately responds to David, like a father who cannot wait for a son to come to his senses. In verse 11, we read that before David even gets out of bed the next morning, God has already communicated with David's prophet or seer, Gad. And even the options that God gives David to choose from as a punishment for the sin reflect a father desiring to see if his child has learned an important lesson. Given the three options, we read that David chooses to fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into the hands of man. This decision reflects a heart that no longer trusts in numbers, but trusts in a merciful God. And in the end, we observe that God chooses the suitable punishment, diminishing the number of David's trust through a plague that takes the lives of 5% of the men. However, even as God carries out the necessary punishment for sin, we witness God grieving and stopping the angel. Enough. Withdraw your hand. And as King David watches the plague sweep through the land, the reality of these innocent people being killed for his sin weighs heavily on him. At the moment God withdraws his wrath and is moved to mercy, we hear David begging God to allow this punishment to fall on him and his family rather than innocent sheep. And while God has already stopped the angel of death, David's words remind us of a truer and more perfect king, Jesus. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the one without sin, would lay down his life for his sheep. And not only does God relinquish his punishment of David, but he also brings him to a place of promise. While David is unaware of what God is doing, we're invited to witness the amazing illustration of God's forgiveness and response to David's contrite heart. Even though God has previously communicated to David that he would not be the one to build a temple, God brings David to a place where his son Solomon would eventually build that temple. For the place that God brings David to, the threshing floor of Aruna, which David purchases and where he offers sacrifices to the Lord, would eventually become the place where Solomon would build God's temple. God waited patiently for me as well, and he worked through the pastor serving at that church. The pastor gently addressed my fear in the lack of numbers. God is in charge of what happens to his church. And while we don't always understand his will or his ways, we trust that God knows best. And we rest in the mystery of not knowing. I did end up leaving that church for reasons other than numbers. And my final offering at that church was a special evening worship service introducing the congregation to the newest hymnal published by their denomination. In the past, these special services were poorly attended. However, that evening the church was packed. Another local congregation who had recently lost their pastor to retirement had been extended an invitation to join us that evening. They had decided to close their church rather than call another pastor. And this event was a way to engage friendships, one that was fruitful in the merger of this church with my former church, which allowed my former church to remain open and continue serving in the community that God had placed them in. Like David at the threshing floor of Aruna, God also gave me a glimpse of hope as I left that church. God waits patiently for all of us to relinquish our fears and our lack of trust. Even in my fear of my former church needing to close the doors due to lack of numbers, God showed me that even if he did close those doors, he had reasons beyond my understanding. God moves members of one congregation to another They come alongside members in another congregation, and those relationships sometimes assist those struggling with a life issue by partnering them with someone seasoned in this area due to life experiences. God's ways are often a mystery to us, but his ways are always perfect and best. And we may not get to see the end result, but we can trust that he's allowing each one of us in larger congregations and smaller congregations to participate 
in his kingdom plan. In closing, I want to take a look again at those 70,000 innocent men that were killed as a consequence of David's sin. The impact his personal sin had on his community. We live in a world that doesn't even want to think or address sin. A world convinced they don't need a savior. And yet, as I look at those 70,000 men sacrificed this evening, I can't help but fall on my knees and thank God for sending Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to remember that the consequence of our sin, as well as a reminder that God is not only slow to anger, but he's merciful. God wants to extend forgiveness to us before we even ask for it. He's a loving God who came up with solution to our fallen, sinful, broken condition before the creation of the world. When we place our trust in numbers and fail to trust God completely, we can be assured of a loving God who waits patiently for us to repent. Because as a father, he eagerly desires to restore us to himself and to those around us. He has already paid the consequence for our sin in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Father God, thank you for the assurance we have in your word that you are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You do not always accuse or keep your anger forever. You do not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us for our iniquities. You remove our transgressions from us. And as our Father, you have compassion for us as your children. And extend your compassion to all who fear you. Thank you for the cross the sacrifice of your one and only Son. Thank you for designing a way to restore us to yourself, to one another, and to all of creation. We pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.